What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode number 119. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? It's going pretty well, man. You know, I've just been thinking nonstop about Shield Wall Sentinel and just how it's the best comment in the set. I mean, the data just says that, doesn't it? Um, well, it sort of does, but it sort of doesn't. I don't know, Ben. You have to look at it from a wider context. Don't look at raw numbers. Come on. You know better. You have science background. <laughs> Oh of my it God! Has higher numbers, <laughs> but it's only because it's linked to the wing wing mental chaplain. <laughs> Without the wing mental chaplain, it's nothing and nothing. I tell you, uh, I, I seem to have touched a sore spot. We, we've opened the Pandora's <laughs> box here. Uh, tell you what, let, let's get through our intro nonsense, and we've got a great show with Sirkovitz here today. That's right. Hey guys. We are joined by Sirkovitz once again. If you haven't been with the show for too long. We we did have Sirkovitz on quite a while ago, um, but Sirkovitz is kind of a data analysis supreme in the magic community. So uh, really excited to have you along to chat about some of this stuff going on in DMU. But before we get to all that, of course, your usual housekeeping. If you're not already in there, check out the Discord. It's the best place to go to chat with us as well as the rest of the Traficionado community. And uh, you'll also see Sirkovitz pop in there from time to time. Now that he's a uh, he's big into the uh, you know the article making and streaming and doing all sorts of awesome MTG content. It's a nice little dose of uh, of some data that's coming in when we see him pop in. So it's always good to see you there. Um, and then if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. Huge thanks to all of our patrons that support us each and every week. You can get things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, our pre-shows, which are usually about 10 minutes where Ben and I just chat. prior to the actual recording of the show. And this week we have a nice little conversation with Sirkovitz as well. If I am remembering correctly, aren't you the one that came up with the name Traficionados? You're welcome. (laughs) Because obviously (laughs) that's some of our our finest branding. Well, I thought it would would work. work. I I, I saw it and I thought like, yes, that's the one. I'd like Mm. giving names to things. I think I'm I'm quite, I, I always call my experiments, my every experiment that I run at, at work has its name depending on what I'm doing. And mm. uh, usually they are very NSFW uh, as well, but uh, <laughs> that's a different story. We'll save it for the side off. So uh, let's get into our crack a draft type thing today. I've actually got a pack three pick one for us. So the first two packs went pretty well. Uh, I wound up in a an all right blue white deck. Uh, took some solid things early. I took a Raph, a few Runic shots, some Stalfer times, uh, Wing Mantle Chaplain that had gotten in there, but I never really found the defenders to support it. I ended up with a Sten Paranoid Partisan, and I figured if I picked this up, I think I got this midway through pack one. I picked up a good number of enchantments and instants, uh, both of which it can cost reduce. So, for example, I had a Citizen's Arrest, a Love Song of Night and Day, and a Prayer of Binding when I took the Sten. So I was thinking, okay. This could be. This could actually do some solid work here. Uh, it doesn't help much with my many one drop, uh, but you know that, that's just how it is. Now I open pack three, and I'm going to scan through some of the cards in this pack. I'm solidly in blue white. I picked up two sacred peaks and a radiant grove, the red white, uh, the, the two red white lands, and one green white land in case I had opened something splashable. Uh, but then here in pack three, I found myself with maybe not the best pack ever. But an interesting one to discuss. So I'm going to ignore some of the cards that I'm definitely not taking. But a few things here. I mean, the rare in the pack was Arata's Firebrand. Solid two drop in the aggressive red decks. But uh, after that, there was some other uncommons. There's like a Rulikmon's uh, Strength of the Coalition. In blue and white, 
We have an Argivian Cavalier, Artillery Blast, Talus Lookout, Talarian Geyser, Protect the Negotiators, the uh, uncommon counterspell, and then a Talarian Terror. Uh, the land uh, in this pack, there was a Sacred Peaks, another one, and a Tangled Islet. Some other strong cards, but nowhere close to my colors, a Phyrexian Razor. Uh, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think of this pick. I think that that's really a strong pack when you actually can start thinking what you're going to wheel. Um, there are five cards that I would consider picking from this, and um, uh, namely the Tolarian Terror, the Tolarian Gazer, uh, Talus Lookout, Argivian Cavalier, and the uh, Protect the Negotiators. I think that either of those five cards is pretty decent. So now I had to really think quite a long time. Um, and I actually changed my pick uh, four times, I think, during my mm. thinking about this pick uh, wow. when I was preparing for the episode. So it's like really non-straightforward um, in there. And um, I know that, you know, you, you've selected the Tolerant Terror, the spoiler alert, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, whatnot. Um, yep. And I think it's a very defensible pick. I don't think I would pick it, though. Mm. But it's like it's 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 razor thin close because I at first I was like yeah then that's that's the obvious pick, so your deck has a bunch of spells um, and a bunch of good spells even but it doesn't have much of um, in terms of threats. Mm. Now you have a couple of like small small ball creatures like the Raf like the um, uh, the other uh, blue white legend what is it called the Sten. Sten yeah yeah but apart from that well like Love Song of Night and Day. Captain Skull, which is not really great in that situation as a threat because you just don't have enough. But you have a Soaring Drake and and, and Talus Lookout. Um, and then you have a bunch of uh, removal. You have uh, Runic Shots, two of them, Destroy Evil. Um, you have Stall for Time, sort of like Tempo Removal, Citizen's Arrest, and uh, um, uh, Prayer of Binding. Mm-hmm. And based on that, based on that, my optimal... So I think you have enough removal. That's why I'm going to ignore Tolarian Gazer, which I think is the strongest of the five cards um, mm-hmm. in that uh, particular situation. I think the Tolarian Gazer is the strongest of the five cards that will be fitting in your white-blue uh, strategy. Um, I think that, you know, with the couple of top lands that you have, you might even play Artillery Blast in some some situations, if you really would like to. But, uh, but that's the sixth one that I didn't consider. I think Tolarian Terror, it just doesn't have enough of the spells you want to cast some of those spells slightly too late um and because of that it's not going to be as powerful as in some other decks and at the same time also if you look at your creatures it doesn't have any support so it will be like the only ground force that they have to deal with and um that's sometimes not a good thing uh, in, in these type of decks that's why I think in this particular one, I would pick Talas Lookout number two. Because mm. when I looked at your threats, um, your actual threats that will kill are uh, Love Song of Night and Day, Bird Token, that will become a 2-2, Soaring Drake, uh, the other Talus Lookout, um, and that's more or less it, if I, if I, if I look at the proper threats. Mm-hmm. So all of them are up in the air. Um, and therefore, and, you know, maybe you can still like pick two, three walls later in that draft. And because of that, if you do, then you have also the one-one bird tokens. If you pick a couple of the shield uh, shield guys, uh, the one threes. Yeah. And because of that, I would pick the second Talus Lookout to have like at least your threats are consistently in the air. So you have like a consistent plan of I'm attacking you in the air. I don't care about the ground force because I have runic shots that will kill your creatures that are counterattacking me. Mm. Um, or um, at the later stages of the game, I can stall for time. 
um, um, and you know a couple of couple of other things that you have there as as, as, as tricks. So I think that um, this would be the optimal kind of um, strategy for you. Totally agree. When I was looking at this pack, I saw Talarian Terror, and yeah, Talarian Terror is a great great card, but kind of to Sikrovitz's point, I didn't see too much of the support there. I think the timing of the spells that you have is more important than trying to just like play them to cheapen the the terror. And I'm a big fan for flying beaters in this format. It's it's pretty hard to deal with a lot of flyers. So yeah, I'm on the Talus lookout as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just to add a note, um, and I would hope to wield the counter spell to protect the negotiators <laughs> because that card wields quite a lot. I can give you the stats of how much it wields because I'm literally working on the stats for wheeling of the cards. So uh, yeah, uh, fantastic analysis from, from, from both of you guys. And now uh, my, my thinking was some, some, somewhat along the same lines. I was thinking, okay, I need a win condition. And I, I do see the Talus Lookout and the Talarian Terror as both solid options. Now, I guess what I was thinking was that Talarian Terror, I have a lot of spells. But you're right in the Runic Shot. Yeah, it costs one, but you're not casting it on turn one. Sometimes you're casting it on turn six or you're even saving it for their larger, more threatening creatures, uh, while you kind of let your ground stuff hold back uh, that they're, they're little two twos and three threes. Now, I, I would just like to not mar- mark that your ground stuff consists of Raph, Stan, and a three two domain yeah. Merfolk. Yeah, exactly. So when when I would cast this Talarian Terror, you're right in that it would sometimes be the only creature on the board, and then opponent says, okay this removal spell that's been dead in my hand this whole time now it has a target yeah it costs two more but now it has a target or if i'm getting beaten down uh all of a sudden this talarian terror doesn't really help shore up my defenses too much because as we know this set is rife with combat tricks to help attackers break through a single defender or bounce spells or other tap spells or or ways to get this out of the way so i think blue white can take a few different approaches which we're going to talk about later on uh one of which is the more assertive strategy one of which is the more defensive strategy i think talarian terror fits a little bit better in the defensive strategy and i almost feel like my deck is trying to push me to try to kill with flyers instead of of relying on the terror agreed all right on to our fairy tibble this is the roses and thorns style segment where ben and i and sirkovitz share a high and a low from the past week so ben do you want to kick this off so uh, it's been a short week at school. My Teferi is that uh, I have a, a short week, which is always nice. I got uh, a day off and um, I like the cold weather. Uh, fall is my favorite season. I'm very happy that it's changing and it's time to bust out my sweater collection. Always a good time. My tibble is that, of course, with the fall and changing seasons, uh, I got a bit of a cold. You might be able to hear it in my voice still. I missed some some gatherings with friends and you know, that, that's always a big bummer for me. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to recover fully in the next week. Yeah. And then for me, um, I'm, my Teferi is that this has recently been the end of a very, very long, difficult season for me. Um, some personal stuff that I've been going through is finally over and it's really awesome to get a weight off your shoulders in that way. And then I'll echo as well the fall situation. Autumn in the, the Northeast here in the U.S. is really awesome especially where ben and i live it tends to be like ridiculously humid and hot and then all of a sudden you're putting sweaters on so uh very happy to not be like walking out in sweltering heat every morning uh and um able to enjoy the weather as well yeah my tibble is that uh i recently got a parking ticket i live in something of a small city it's one square mile but it feels very city-like it's right across the river from new york city so it, it kind of has a lot of the new york city vibes but that means because i park on the street i've got to like shuffle my car around every week because they do street cleaning multiple times a week on different sides of the street and so i kind of have to do this shuffle and i ran out to move my car and i missed 
the like cutoff by two minutes. I got a oh. ticket two minutes early. So if I just, and I was on a work meeting, which is why I was a little bit late, but um, yeah, unfortunate. I'm going to have to pay that parking ticket. Brutal. They should never make that in residential areas. Honestly, you should have a residence permit. Just stay there and don't move. That's yeah, I agree. Cleaners. And I do, I do have one. I have a residence permit. Oh, okay. But, you okay. Have but it's still, you have to clean. shuffle because of the street cleaning. Oh, my, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Those damn so what are like streets. sort of New- <laughs> Newark kind of uh, side of New York? It's on the New Jersey side, yeah. Yeah, because I, when I was in Newark, I could see New York through the, through yeah, the water Yeah, so it's somehow. like, uh, yeah, it's, I live 20 minutes from the Newark airport. Okay, basically. yeah, okay. Uh, my Teferi, I started sort of giving lectures. So it was my first proper lecture of my own course this, this week. That's, that's, I think, positive. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. I mean, for me, maybe, but I don't know. For students, that might be their Tibalt. Uh, uh, I, I never asked. Uh, most of them didn't have to wake up to leave the lecture, so I guess that's 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 a good result. That 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 might be okay. I used them lecturing about the use of memes in project management or something like that. Hmm. I mean, I was teaching about project management, but I was teaching them based on memes because why <laughs> wouldn't you do that? And you can't um, fall asleep during a class on memes anyway, so. That's true. No, uh, at, at least uh, at least you have to put some kind of four Zs emoji or something if you want to do that. <laughs> uh, my tip out this week is that um, the day is not constructed. We live, we just live in the wrong planet. I think the day should be like maybe 29 hours and then I maybe <laughs> would squeeze in most of my stuff, but it doesn't. So, um, yeah, I don't sleep much. That's, that's basically it. Mm. By the way, if you wondered... In pack three, the chance of wheeling the uh, protect the negotiators you open roughly forty percent. Wow, that's good. Which I should check a, my data. Which is not a bad, not a bad, not a bad chance. So um, that's why I would be hoping to. To I, I remember sort of half that uh, it is pretty much a wheelable card. Therefore, you can hope to get it back. It's really a good card as well. Well, I'm I'm done. That's my tibble. Yeah, I mean, I I, <laughs> I I don't sleep enough. Now on to our listener question of the week, which uh, comes from Hulu. How do you decide whether to play purely defensive creatures like a 2-4 defender or a 0x wall? Between a 2-4 and a 0-5, which one do you prefer in which decks? That's a good, good question. question. I think it really depends on the text on the defenders. If we're talking vanilla defenders, I'd probably rather something that's got some power. So at least when it's blocking, it threatens to kill a creature, potentially. Um, but most defenders have some kind of other text to make them worth playing. And so that's... That text box is where I would want to see what's going on in, in determining whether I'd rather an 05 or a, a 24, for instance. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's obviously I would prefer a 24 because it literally stops things from attacking, while 05s are always, you know, you always are in this annoying situation that someone attacks into your 05 with a 2 2, and you're like, yeah, block. Oh, combat trick dead. Um, they. When they attack you into a 2-4 with a 2-2, you know that they have a combat trick. When they attack you with the 2-2 on a 0-5, because you're not presenting any threat, um, it's very much that um, they will always do that because they can, and you have to double guess if they have a trick. So that, that's, that's a big difference. Now, I would almost, I will almost never play exclusively defensive creatures, unless I have a very, very good reason for that. Because even if you play like a very defensive deck like the... Dovin's Acuity, um, no win con kind of decks in um, uh, RNA. Mm. Even there, if you put like a couple of two fours or one fours to block and to treat them as a sort of like a removal, like every player that you're going to play has some removal. And if you don't have any creatures except for those two, 
Well, they instantly become uh, this uh, lightning rod for any removal because they will be just desperate to get rid of the removal that they were holding for the last 15 turns and they don't know what to do with it. Aha, first creature, boom. Um, bonk, you go into the horny jail. Um, <laughs> so that's the problem of playing purely defensive creatures in the decks that would want purely defensive creatures. So I would only play them in build arounds, like if you had high alert in, um, was it R? It was in RNA. Or if I have other synergies, like with the Wing Mantle Chaplain in this set, I'm going to play my O5 Walls if I have a Wing Mantle Chaplain. If I have three copies of Wing Mantle Chaplain because I have the uh, favorite card of Ben here, the, the, the Shield Mate. Um, because it will give me a 1-1 that is a pretty decent attacker um, and, and also provide this blocker. Now, things change a lot when they have utility. So, for example... Um, I know that uh, before the season started, you were quite low on the uh, uh, on the green wall from the set. Uh, however, it turns out to be like an excellent creature, and I treat it as a utility creature. I don't treat it as like a defensive creature even because an O2 is nothing. Yeah. But for me, it's it's sort of like fix my land draws, um, especially in best of one, you struggle to get to six mana and sometimes you need to get six mana, getting an extra land is super important. So I treat it as a draw a land that sort of can fix a bit. It improves the odds of drawing the mana that you miss by quite a lot. Um, and at the same time, you block a 4-4, four, four, boom, four, that's a gain for life on, on top of that. Uh, or if you have um, the 2-4 wall, that is also pretty good in this format, you can sacrifice it later in the game, gain one life and draw a card, which is good um, all of a sudden because you can do it when you have the mana to do it uh, occasionally. So with utility, it all changes. I mean, I will play those utility things. I will play the O5 wall in some decks when I want to filter out uh, lands or spells that I don't need. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of those kind of options and uh, you have to look what your deck does want to do look what your plan is, and then decide whether you want that utility creature that doesn't have any offensive capability. No notes. Let's move on to our main topic for today, uh, which is vector analysis. And not necessarily the physics or math kind you may be expecting. So <laughs> I, I wish you all could see what Zirkovitz is doing right now, but he's, he's doing some good pointing. And that's a great way to remind us of, of what a vector really is. So let's get into uh, Dominar United vectors, right? So first of all, Zirkovitz, welcome back to the show. It's been too long. Uh, I think everyone kind of knows you as a household name. <laughs> yeah, he's got some, some colored pencils, it seems now, and... Uh, is giving us a, a quick refresher on vectors. So uh, if I could pull you away from your engaging hobby here, uh, who are you? What, what are you doing here? Me. Yeah. Who, who, who am I? You? <laughs> <laughs> um, I? I don't deal with vector. I'm a, uh, who am I? I'm a, I'm, I'm a biologist officially. That's, that's, I think that's who I am most of my time. But in the night, I removed the lab coat <laughs> and sort of, Put a sweater because I think that's what you need to analyze data and magically gathering. No sweater or some kind of black t-shirt. I, I put so. one of those things on and I do some data analysis for Magic the Gathering because I do love the game. I played the game since I was 16, 15 even, um, which was in the 90s. So, uh, you know, uh, keep in mind, I'm one <laughs> of the ancient players. I started in 97. Then I had some retirement, came back. And because, you know, at my age, you don't have competitive ambitions like I had when I was 16. What you can do is you can go very deep in the hobby, but without uh, having to travel on the weekends. And the only way for me to do that was, you know, getting six, 17 lens data out of the website and doing my analyses. 
I started doing them when 17 Lens was very young. And because I started doing them, putting them on Twitter, I caught some views. People started watching them. I started collaborating with 17 Lens. I mean, people very often think that I'm actually working in 17 Lens. I'm not. I'm helping them sometimes. And I, you know, of course, know all the guys, but uh, they are a separate entity. I'm just um, yet another um, content creator with maybe slightly better deal with 17 Lens because uh, I do help some beta testing or whatever. So, yeah. And I take those numbers and I try to convert them into actionable information. I try to figure out heuristics that are based on data and not on folklore. That's basically what I'm trying to do in terms of magic content creation. And as I believe you said in your own words, you're also a master of reactionary comedy. So we'll let that sprinkle throughout the show. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, now, reactionary, not reactionist. I would like to make a very, very strict um, um, differentiation there. You'll get a very different kind of online following for one versus the other. Yeah, no, no. I, I, it's the kind of following that I ban most of the time. So no, 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 thank you. <laughs> it's for the best. Now, uh, we've been something like thinking a lot about vectors as far as Dominar United. And uh, there's just a lot of diversity in how different vectors look and how different decks look in this format. And that made us think, well, it's going to be useful to discuss all the vectors in this format. Maybe rather than discussing specific color pairs, maybe it's going to be more interesting to talk about what a deck's plan is, how it's able to achieve that, and how it's able to achieve it through different color setups, which, of course, uh, data is always useful to analyze for. So, for example, blue-white, I've played a blue-white deck that's like go wide with, with creatures. Um, there's an aggressive spells version of it with more of a blue-centered package. And then there's a defensive deck that actually would have wanted that Solarian Terror up top. Now, um, we're going to discuss a few of these vectors today. We want to discuss the go-wide, the spells, domain, and then also wingmantlechaplain.deck, as we're calling it, kind of the defenders package. So we should mention what we mean by vectors. And Sirkovitz was actually showing off some, some pencils and things like that. And that's actually a, a great way of thinking about it. Uh, a quick refresher is that cards and decks they both have strength and direction just like vectors in physics and math so you know you could say a card is so and so good and it does so and so thing some people talk about having a plan or what direction it's pointing we've just given it a bit of a better name uh, to talk about it with so the strength of a card is generally indicated by the card's quality right and the direction is genuinely indicated by what the card is trying to do or wants to do so i would say argivian phalanx and defiler of faith they both point in the same vector direction this go wide they're both kind of top end cards uh, they both enjoy having a bunch of one ones on the board uh, but i would say that they would have different vector strengths because the defiler of faith is a uh, well, I mean, we get we do have the analysis team here, but I would say it's probably got a higher win percentage. I don't know. It seems pretty good. Uh, you can maybe check out that. But uh, they're pointing the same vector direction, but they have different strengths. Argavian Phalanx and Yavimaya Sojourner, these have different directions, but are about the same like vector length, the same power level, if you will. So we've built some ideas about this set. We're kind of excited to talk to Sirkovitz about these just to see if anything in the numbers supports our, our observations. Yeah, before we move on to that, I do just want to mention if you're not super familiar with this concept of deck vectors or even card vectors, we have put a few episodes out going really deep into this topic. So I'll put that in the episode description if you want to check out those episodes. Ooh, link my articles too. Yeah, definitely. It was a good article. I, I, I really like the concept because it's, first of all, it's novel, but second of all, 
it sort of links very well to how people th- think about magic before how, or how they thought about magic well and still think so i think that i like old theory and uh, that, that just basically it, in biology or or in magic uh, anywhere i think that there are seminal pieces of work and um they should be respected and you should come back to them because they are there for a good reason i mean people thought hard about them and they become evergreen uh for again, good reasons because they put some concepts um, in a nice way, and I think that the mo- one of the most seminal concepts in limited magic is the quadrant theory. Mm. Now, when I think about the quadrants, where the card is good, I instantly can convert that to the vectors of some sort. Because yeah. if something pulls me to one vector to the other vector, I can easily um, uh, think about it. And I'm pretty sure that with the data, you can do a more structural and formal analysis of what you're talking about is just you need to define the space the solution space uh well enough so um just a side note basically one 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 type of analysis that i do is i basically take a deck list convert it to a number and do it with thousands of deck lists and then i plot them on a two-dimensional space and if you do that then you can look at prevalence of certain cards like let's say number of two drops in a deck and then you can start actually drawing vectors on top of those uh, uh, ordinance plots. And then you can see like, look, these cards are pulling me this direction. These cards are pulling me that direction. And um, uh, when you do that, then you can start drawing your vectors. And I think that that would be a very valid analysis to do. And I think I figured out maybe a way how to do it. Let's see if we mm. get the data for this set and if I can apply something like that. And if I have time to properly apply it, because of course those things take an insane amount of time. But... Coming back to the um, um, to the go wide vector in uh, in Dominaria United. So first of all, there is not such a big difference between the wide defiler and the Argivian phalanx. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, their game in hand win rate is uh, there's like a percentage point difference between them, hmm. which is less than you would think. It's like yeah, uh, phalanx definitely. has uh, fifty six and a half percent uh defiler has 57 and a half that's Phew. okay at least i got the, the, the which one was better right yeah but but it's but it's pretty close because actually the, the, when you think about it, the defiler is obviously strong but it's not like super strong it's a five drop in in a deck that doesn't want to go that big on the mana mm-hmm. while phalanx is very often a one drop uh, or two drop, which is which is quite great. Uh, I mean, it's not a two drop that you're going to play on turn two, mm-hmm. but um, but you can play this and keep mana for the trick, which is great. While with the defiler, you have to completely tap out, and you're at the mercy of uh, opponent's removal, uh, and you cannot use the m- one of the more powerful things in the format. So take up the shield, uh, right. uh, basically the combat trick that gives indestructibility. So um, which has a much higher win rate than the defiler, by the way. That doesn't surprise me. That trick is awesome. Yeah, that's that's true. So I think that this format is more than any format in the recent year. It's more defined by colors and number of colors in the deck in terms of how strong particular strategies are. Now, go wide is has to be by definition a coherent coherent deck. So you cannot allow yourself because you want to end the game relatively quickly. So mm-hmm. you can't allow yourself to stumble on mana, which means that go white strategies will naturally drag you towards two color combinations. And I think that honestly, I can imagine a black white go white deck. I'm sure that they do exist because you have the war horse, you have the white, white basically will be 
will be the leading uh, reason for going white because yeah. go white is a white mechanic really in this format. Like this format doesn't have signpost and commons in the traditional sense when the signpost tells you what you want to do. This mechan- this this set has those five defining creatures in each color that get cheaper for something and that's what the color wants to be doing more or less. Yeah, totally. And this is like a big, big difference in how the set was organized and this, this has like big knock-on effects on everything. This is the set that has almost the most three-color decks of any uh, format in the recent years. It has the most five-color decks of any format in the recent years, most four-color decks. And it has also like the fewest strict two-color decks of any format in the recent years. So it's like absolutely different from everything. Because of how it was designed, it was like a wizards planned it to be different from anything else, and they actually succeeded. I mean, kudos to them. They made, they made an excellent job on, on set design for Limited in this one. But if you want to, first of all, if you ask me what is the defining thing in terms of vectors of going wide, I would say that the pairing color that will go together with white is the defining factor of what was going to be a successful go white vector. And I think that most of the time, if you want to go white in this format, you want to go white red because that's by far the best version of the go white deck is white red. And uh, it is so because uh, of the existence of, I think that the most powerful common in go white strategies, and that's the, uh, is it? Keldon Strike Team, Strike Force. Oh yeah, yep. we, we've got it in the notes too. Keldon Strike Team. Yeah, that's that's I think the strongest go white uh, synergy common in in the format and um, uh, and maybe slightly also underappreciated because it goes slightly later. Um, it actually has the second highest win rate of all the commons in white red after take up the shield, which I mentioned before. So yeah, uh, uh, and why is that? Because first of all. The problem of go white decks is reach. You play small creatures and not reach by blocking flyers, reach as in ability to deal those last couple of points of damage. Sure. So you start aggressively, you you drop your opponent to like four, and normally what happens then is that they stabilize, they start controlling the board, they gain like seven life all of a sudden, and they are at 11, and you're like, oh, yeah, so close. It feels bad. But in the same game, if they like play the first stabilizing creature and you just like drop three bodies with haste um, uh, and swing with everything, they're like, rawr, rawr. I think I'm dead just now. And that's what um, uh, Strike Team does. Second of all, it has this weird ability of giving haste to everything that you play on the turn that you play them, mm. which led me to play this and like a phalanx on the same turn, even without kicking it uh, wow. and, and, and giving phalanx um, uh, haste. I actually managed to kick it and play the Phalanx for one mana um, on top of it when I was slightly flooded. And all of a sudden, they are dealing with nine uh, hasty uh, hasty, um, uh, damage. Even if they survive the first attack, then you can still have the the, the plus two plus one combat trick that can finish the job. But uh, I think that these are the sort of like uh, cards that will be um, defining for this format. So first of all, you have uh, Keldon Strike Team and Argivian Cavalier, two go-white creatures that allow you to go white and will go white and are important in going white. Uh, second of all, you have the combat tricks, like take up the shield. And I think that this is the... And Heroic Charge is the second one, which is the mm. giving uh, power and toughness to everything. Um, then you will have cheap removal. And especially uh, uh, three of those are Citizen's Arrest, uh, Lightning Strike, and Destroy Evil. Um, Lightning Strike because it's just a good card. 
destroy evil because it just aligns super well in this format and it's like a premium removal because you can just kill their big thing for two mana and still have mana to do other things. And citizen arrest because of its color intensity, multicolor decks don't want to play it that much, so you will get it slightly later than you would normally get, and it's actually mm. a good removal spell because there's not much enchantment punishment in this format. Yeah. So these are the like this is the the, the core of the of, of 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 your vector, and these are the cards that like good part of lightning strike and destroy evil is that they can go into any deck. Uh, take up the shield can go into multiple decks. Cavalier can go into multiple decks, but sort of like Keldon Strike Team, Citizens Arrest, they won't be played in many things. And Heroic Charge is also a card that you should be given. So um, uh, so that's pretty good. And then you got like a bunch of stuff that are just like, you know, two drops on, and, and good three drops. You got, you know, Benalish Sleepers, Goblin Pickers. These are just two drops that you just put in your deck. Um, um, you can get, um, you know, like Flowstone Kavu. You are, you are given Phalanx, which is slightly weaker than uh, than the other commons, but it's still pretty decent. Um, and you basically build a deck that is main strength is not like super high power, but it's cohesiveness and and the ability to uh, to quickly deal damage in a format where lots of people would dirtle and stumble because of the mana problems. I mean, I played the draft deck yesterday and um, didn't go well because I stumbled on mana three times and that's it. And I played against an aggressive deck and nothing. Then I drafted a deck and I opened the uh, Wing Metal Chaplain in pick one, pick one. Guess what? It's good. If you can spend 41 picks just building around your one wall that you know you're always going to draw because you get those uh, one trees, you're going to have a good deck. Trust me on that. Yep. So... you mentioned uh, you mentioned Kelvin Strike Team being underappreciated. Not on this show. Ben and I love Kelvin Strike Team. <laughs> oh no no and, no no! Uh, you, I'm, uh, when when I'm really, talking underappreciated, yeah, I'm not talking that p- people know that it's good. Like people that consume yeah. content and read data right. know that it's good. It's just yeah, that, you're talking about um, from like a pick order perspective. Yeah, exactly. If our arena arena players still don't appreciate as highly as they should. Mm-hmm. Like right, right. also that stupid thing, like that it can be played and and instantly give um, uh, enlist bonus to another creature. Yep. I found it's that like too. so good. I mean, it's like little things there, here and there, everywhere. Just make it an excellent card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to play like any number on of them. the card because, like that, like you you mentioned, it gives haste regardless of whether you kick it or not. Yeah, and the enlist thing, it is like a hidden text on the card. It doesn't tell you that explicitly that you can do that, but it's it's nice a nice little. Uh, cherry on top, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. And I think, I think you're right. The Kelvin strike team, at least for me, when I've been drafting these go wide vectors and I'm not in red and you know, base white, but I'm using some other color to pair with when I open a Kelvin strike team, it makes me want to move into red because the card's just that good. Mm. I, I also like, I know that this card has really bad numbers, but I had like big six, relatively good success with it because I played it with Kelvin strike teams is the one free barbarian that when it dies, it deals damage equal to its power. Mm. And I had strike teams and these guys, and I was just like slamming for four with these ones. They're practically unblockable because who wants to trade with it and then losing another creature or having four in the face. And at a certain moment, what can they do? I mean, can they block a four, three um, that will deal four in the face when they are on three life now? Mm-hmm. So um, it becomes tricky. So there's like a couple of many synergies there that can actually use cards that are not always good. And I think that, again, this is like a strong part of this format is that cards can be situationally from bad to good on the same card, depending on how well you can utilize it and how well you can fit it into the game plan of your deck. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's something we love to talk about with vectors, right? Because the the the, the vector strength of a given card changes depending on which vector you put it in. And so like you put a bunch of them together and then they all are equally more powerful. It's like... <laughs> 
You're looking for a word synergy, I think. <laughs> yeah, synergy sounds good. <laughs> so there's a few other color pairs that that I've experienced with this go wide vector. And I will admit, I'm a little higher on the one ones strategy, like resolute reinforcements, just putting like four captains calls in a deck and just going so much wider than your opponent can do. Um, and with that, with the flash of the reinforcements and the sorcery that's Captain's Call, uh, I found blue-white can be kind of fun to do sometimes, especially if you can pick up an early Raph. And I think Raph takes a blue-white, like, uh, go-wide deck like this way up top. If you can find that right balance of creatures and removal, the sad thing is you don't really want to be tapping your creatures to draw cards if you're using a spell to, like, bounce something to your opponent's hand then the question is do you tap down your two creatures or do you attack in with them so there's a bit of tension there but raf is such an individually strong card that i found it you know pretty solid to, to put in any blue white deck that's that already has this go wide vector in it uh, to begin with i'm, I'm currently playing with raf in my wall deck because it's perfect there i'm just sitting reactively oh, yeah. playing removals and drawing cards for that it's brilliant now, black white, I know you mentioned might not be the best place for going wide, but curving Illus Elcor into a captain's call is just ah, it's chef kiss. It's so much fun. And it feels like you're playing with like uh, like an aristocrat's deck, especially if you have any kind of recursion, if you can pick up an Urgborg reclamation to ensure that you always have access to Illus Elcor. Uh, I, I love being in the situation where your opponent's at like five life. You have like six creatures and you have a blood artist effect like Illus Elcor. You just say, all right, the game's over. Turn it all sideways. It can't go wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. It's just my, my problem is that this deck is like awfully difficult to come together well. Um, because there is also like the white black deck that is based on pure attrition. Mm. And I think that, you know, I know that Phyrexian Missionary is a good card in any deck. But it's particularly good when the game lasts a bit longer and you can actually recur something with it and still get a decent body uh, from the deal. Uh, If you play it in super aggressive deck, it just like doesn't play to its full potential most of the time. And there's a bunch of those black cards that will be doing exactly that. Plus there is on top of that, there is I think like an uh, absent version of the uh, wall deck Mm. uh, that can be pretty decent. So black-white pulls you in multiple different directions. I think one of them is this go-white because as I said, you you get the bunch of white uh, creatures that or white spells that will make multiple soldiers. You got the Warhorse in black that can also make multiple bodies. You got the Elias Elcor, uh, which is definitely supporting that kind of strategy. It's just, you need like a lot of those uh, cards at the same time, which will not always come together in the same draft and you might be pulled into the different part of it in the attrition or the worst case scenario will end up somewhere in between. So like you will have like a half attrition, half go wide, which means you don't go wide enough and you don't attrition well enough. And uh, that's just the risk that you're playing there. So next, let's get into our spells vector. So this one I think is primarily centered in blue. It's got a lot of instant sorceries, a lot of cantrips in the set, spells that draw you cards. And that's a good way to make sure that you keep drawing into more spells. Uh, I noticed that this one seems to break into two sub vectors here, a more assertive, aggressive version And then a more reactive defensive version where the aggressive version tends to want to land like early drops uh, and then back them up with cantrips that make sure that they get buffed. Uh, Something like electrostatic infantry, Gitu amplifier. Uh, And then the more defensive version, which kind of uses removal spells, uh, bounce spells, things like that, and then tries to close out the game either with a big unblockable flyer or Tolarian terrors after having, you know, walled up the ground pretty effectively. Yeah, that's um, that's how I see it. I think that there is also, 
it's weird even to say that, but there's also like a mid-range tempo, which is a deck that has all those early drops that you normally would have. Um, the infantries, the Balmors, and uh, and things like that. A bunch of interaction, but it's important. That's interaction, uh, cantrips, or whatever. But also has the... Uh, so I played a version of it that had a couple of Maria Outriders, uh, a couple of Talarian mm. Terrors, a couple of Taplands to get the Maria Outriders into proper domain. And it was that I was playing those early creatures and just doing some chump damage with it, uh, dropping the opponent to like eight maybe, and then uh, playing some spells. I have a bunch of the uh, Phyrexian espionages to draw some cards later in the game, uh, which is not like a card that you would think like in the tempo aggressive deck. Mm. Um, and like loads of spells. Like uh, I was just burning the minus one, minus O's to draw a card. And then, you know, to like turn six, I'm just like dropping to Talarian Terror sort of a sudden, and they're like, hmm. That's going to be a problem. And then they deal with them. And I'm just like, right, Maria Outrider. Yeah. Uh, deal four to you. You're at four. Uh, Maria Outrider, deal four to you. You're at zero. GG. And yeah, and this is like a very powerful strategy combining because I tried this pure aggressive tempo here in, in this format. And I thought I'm having like a busted deck. And it was always short. I mean, hmm. it might have been like variants or whatnot. But I think that I went 0-3 with it. And then um, in every game, I left opponent at two or one life. Um, mm. But it still went 0-3. Then I drafted again a very similar white-red deck that was also like super hyper aggro because that's what I wanted to test. I did another 0-3. And again, I was in the same situation. I left them at three or four. So I thought, okay, spice it up a bit, add a bit of mid-range, and you have a much better uh, spells-based deck. Mm. And I think that... With more staying power. Yeah, I think that this is the way to, to play the 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 blue the blue red versions of the deck. I think that the more controlling ones, I would play something like blue black, maybe Sultai. Mm. And then you can play like a bunch of bunch of spells plus Talarian Terrors. I think that Talarian Terrors are always the important aspect because you know it, it just feels wrong when you play a five five foot ward for one mana. Yeah, it but it also feels good. <laughs> wrong but good. This sort of you know, uh, the, the, like many things, uh, it feels feels uh, feels wrong but it's like good. eating an entire um, pint of Ben and Jerry's in one sitting. <laughs> one of my favorite things. Yeah, we can say that. We can say that. Let, let's, <laughs> let, 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 let's do it like that. Uh, let's go the, along this path. Um, but also, you got when you put go the Sultai route, you got access to the uh, Urbark repossession. And that just puts a completely different like uh, level onto it because you're just like, oh, well, you killed my two Talarian Terrors. So what can I do? I'm just going to put them back in my hand and replay them instantly because they cost one mana. And it's Herborg like... Agree possession has, has just done so much better than I ever could have predicted. I, I would assume it's very high up in the in the commons list. And probably it is. Let's see. if, if is, is it high in... Uh, it is um, the, 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 the sixth best common in, in, in blue-black. Yeah. Hmm. I assume that there might be some splash in there, but uh, mm, yeah. uh, but in, in generic in generic rankings of commons, it is tenth exactly tenth. Mm. And keep in mind that uh, in top ten, you only have two proper creatures because you have well, one wall um, that I don't count as a proper creature. It's, <laughs> it's a tutor for another wall. Yeah. Um, and then you have Argivian Cavalier and uh, Keldon Strike Team are the only two creatures that are in top ten commons in this format. Mm. Which is shocking. Yeah. Ur- Urborg Repossession feels like one of those turn the corner cards 
where when you resolve it against your opponent, you're thinking, okay, I'm stabilizing, I'm getting back my bomb and a saga, or I'm getting back two creatures, or even just getting back one and you still gain the life uh, can be enough to stabilize sometimes. It's one of the more demoralizing things to see your opponent cast if you're the aggro deck, because you're like, oh god, I gotta beat through two more terrors. Like, can I do that? And that's where the game ends, you leaving them at yeah, two the, life, the, but they're stable. That's exactly, the answer is usually no. You can't. Yeah. Dealing with two terrors is a painful job unless you have a sweeper of some sorts. So mm. no, you can't go through two terrors very easily. And if you go through two terrors and they play two of them extra, now you're in the proper uh, world of pain, I, I would guess. Um, so yeah, this is the sort of like, a, um, like the more controlling version will be heavily dependent on things like, um, what's the name? Tribute to Urborg, is it the one? Yes. Yeah, Tribute. Think, uh, Tribute to Urborg, I think, is one of the most important uh, spells in, in, in that particular build because it's like gives you the early reach. It gives you the um, uh, late inevitability of killing anything. It If you play them well, you can play around those plus one, plus one indestructible spells because uh, they can't do anything about it because it gives minus X, minus X. So it has like a lot of a uh, lot of utility. I think I want to have two of them in all of my like controlling versions. And of course, I think that the, the 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 like the key driving force of every spell deck, independently if it's this mid range blue red or or blue black or blue whatever, is the trio of uh, essence scatter, Pyrexian espionage, and Tolarian gazer. I think that those cards are mm. just excellent, and that's the blue sort of like spell package. And then you supplement it with terrors and talus lookouts uh, for actual um, kill conditions. So do you prefer pairing the blue spells deck with black over red or white? I prefer to pair it with red because it suits my playstyle better. But I can imagine that the blue-black ones are better if you are a much more patient <laughs> person. I, I'm, I literally lose the games because I get bored with playing them. And I just like, <laughs> ah... Let's just let's just do something to make things happen, and um, and, and and then you know, like there are those people that can sit in the middle of the spider web and just like patiently wait for for their time to come. I'm not one of those people. I'm just going to just go Leroy Jenkins uh, because I <laughs> because I want to feel something when I play the game. Yeah, you're a go getter. I can relate to that. I, I definitely tend towards blue red. I I don't think I've drafted blue black that many times, and I've been wondering how much it overlaps with the graveyard vector because the black and the red, it like can, quote unquote, but it's difficult. Red. Yeah, it can, but They're, it's difficult. Uh, hmm. I've noticed that their like dominant primary vectors. I mean, if we think about their cost reduction cycles, uh, the black one is pretty solid. I mean, it pops out every once in a while. The red one almost seems to align with its color the least. Red, it seems to imply, is like the big power color or like the enlist color, I guess. Um, but that one almost seems like it's on the back burner along with the black a little bit. Uh, I guess you can, I mean, there's some self-mill in this set. There's the, the war leech. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that this is, this is the exact overlap when you want to play blue-black with both creature and spell synergies. So you mm. basically have your terrors, but you don't need to play them. Like, you don't need to play them as quickly as you do in the uh, blue-red deck. Mm -hmm. uh, but you will play your eerie... Give me the line there. Uh, soul Tender? Yeah, the eerie Soul Tender, that's the one. Yeah. Uh, you can mill a couple of your Talarian um, terrors or your uh, Rhythming Necromasses, and then you play the... 
frog lord and uh, all of a sudden you have a 7-7 uh, on board mm-hmm. so that that can work and also you put some spells in the graveyard you have your uh, eerie sultander that can die and, and reanimate something bigger uh, and it works all, all, all dandy um, mm-hmm. so I think that that's the, the overlap the, the only problem is that and I would really need to look at the proper data from this format um, especially on the warleach you would need to look at what ratio of spells to creatures you want to play and and in this particular deck i think that you can only play creatures instance and sorceries in this type of deck you can't play any other type of spells otherwise the whole thing will go um wrong yeah Hmm. it's interesting that those two uh cost reducing creatures that they actually pair well together whereas the green one doesn't necessarily pair well with any other ones and the red one it's almost anti the white one even though red white seems to be a natural pairing i mean you're either going very wide or you're playing a mid-rangey threat something that can enlist interesting yeah no i think the red one was a slight miss in terms of power of the other ones like i'm happy playing phalanx i'm happy i'm super happy playing terror i'm super happy playing uh uh, necromass and in some decks i'm really really keen on playing this uh, sojourner is it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. But I'm not happy on playing the red one in almost any deck, really. Because if like, if I can produce a seven power creature, I don't care about playing an extra five, five trampler. <laughs> That's the thing. Exactly. Right. So that kind of brings us to, I think, the more interesting, if not the more the most powerful, I, I think the most interesting of the vectors in this format is domain, right? It's the deck that kind of is the most nebulous. We can mix and match all the colors to kind of make a domain deck work. So one of the questions we're kind of looking to, to figure out here is like, what does the domain deck, if you had to pick a, a like mother of all domain decks, what does that look like? What are the things that make it tick? What are the things that go against it, even though it seems like they might help it? Um, and, and what different, it, it seems like there are like a, a number of different sub vectors within domain as well. So what are, what are your thoughts on domain? I mean, at, it it worked as a mechanic. I think that they did a stellar job on on, on because it's not an easy oh, one yeah. to deliver because you can either break it or make it very underpowered. And I think that they nailed it just like in the right spot. So um, so that's pretty positive uh, from what's. I mean, you know, they made so many blunders over the last years uh, in many aspects, and I'm always going to be critical of those blunders. But I think that it's important to remember that if they do something well, we should also give praise. And then you know, like exactly. Set, Set design made a very, very stellar job on that. People who were streaming the whatever yeah, master... credit where credit's ch- due, right? Yeah. People that were in charge of the last stream of the championship of uh, whatever, of uh, Dominaria Championship, when everything was stuttering. And I literally, I, I always watched those things, but I couldn't watch it because it was just uh. breaking apart. And, you know, like, I love Cedric. I love Mani Devuti. They were doing great and amazing commentary. And I'm watching yeah. it and like, oh, I can't. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's just like... I mean, my streams are technically better and <laughs> I'm possibly the worst technically person that streams in the world and, they was, and they're still better than... than oh, than you come prepared. Do. You have like slideshows and everything. What are you talking about? Yeah, I have slideshows. I, I can do slideshows. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't adjust the frame ratio rate or something. Um, <laughs> but they, they, they did something wrong there anyway. But in terms of set design, they did a stellar job here, and especially the domain is tricky to um, uh, tricky to get right, and they did it, I think, right. And you're right. I think that there's plenty of flavors of domain, and you can play this kind of domain all the good cards, or domain walls, or domain aggro. And all of those things are valid, 
But I think the important aspect of this format in general is that you should really take care of synergy of your deck and focus on getting that synergy together. And I think that if you're playing domain aggro, you shouldn't play domain grindy cards. Mm. Like you don't want your herbal repossessions in the domain deck that focuses on um, aggro sort of semi-combo kills even uh, in this case. When you play like Gaia's Might and give double strike to your trampling Nishoba or something like yeah. that. Um, you don't want to mess those two strategies up because you're again not going to be good in either. And this is the thing that you notice very well with the duality between the Phalanx and the Molten Monstrosity. When one wants to go wide, the other wants to go tall. doesn't work together. And it's the same slow domain decks don't work well together in the uh, fast domain deck chassis. Um, but this adds extra level of complexity. Trying to find those synergy and maximize them um, is a very interesting task. Again, I don't have the full data from 17 lands yet, so I couldn't have done like a very strict analysis on, for example, how many how many dual lands you need to get your domain deck up to standard and how many sources you need of, uh, of, of your kick spells to make them better and stuff like that. Hopefully soon that's going to come. And um, I'm sorry to disappoint in this particular case uh, because I saw that this was uh, mainly your question. We look forward but to we, seeing it when it comes out. But we, 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 we do have, um, we do have um, at least some idea of which, uh, which commons are, are, are good in, um, in multicolor decks. And uh, we know that Marius Outrider is doing pretty well in, in, in lots of those decks. Uh, you can actually look at um, uh, how do Wooberg decks do in, in, uh, in 17 lands, like strictly only win rates of cards that were in the Wooberg deck. And you can see that like uh, best cards to learn gazer because that's what you want to do in this deck. You want to buy time. So draw into your lands because power should be there. You're mm. playing five colors because you're playing the most powerful cards from each color, obviously, even if there is some kind of synergy direct vector uh, that you're using. Mm. So the biggest enemy of you is not drawing your lands. So the biggest friend of you is making games longer. Yeah. And um, that's going to be literally the first analysis uh, analysis that when, when I look at the proper data, um, I will have the data on game length. And mm-hmm. if I have a data on game length, I can sort of look into what is the impact of drawing a particular card? Does it prolong the game and increase your win rate? Does it make the game shorter and increase your win rate? If it makes the game shorter and increases your win rate, this card is a finisher. If it makes game longer, but still increases your win rate, this is a card that makes you survive and get enough time to um, um, to win. And, you know, That's cool. I did this analysis for, I think, Kamigawa, and I calculated it for every card in the set, the, the sort of effect that it has on the game length and on the win rate. And then I sort of put the hypothesis that the more of the cards that prolong the game you will have, the more advantage you will have by being on the draw, and then I tested it, and indeed the, the, the decks that contain lots of those cards that prolonged the game, those decks had a higher win rate on the draw than on the play. So wow, actually really you cool. can look at the composition of your deck and you can, based on the composition of your deck, if you know those uh, stats, you can actually think that actually I want to be on the draw in some of those mm. decks because you have a better chance uh, being on the draw because your deck is so well-tuned towards that kind of strategy. Wow, that, that's think, rare. Yeah, you, and, you don't often get that kind of intuition on whether you should be player draw. It's almost so instinctual to be on the play, but yeah, I know, uh, but but it's an instinctual thing. And you know, don't get me wrong. In Kamigawa, I think it was thirteen percent of the decks that wanted to be on the draw. 
But mm. if you know the rules and if you know that some formats are Kamigawa had a slightly large advantage of being on the play. So obviously you would expect that only few decks will be um, benefiting from being on the draw. But I think in some formats, it will be probably like good 30%, 40% of the decks will be preferring to play, to draw first. And it's it's nice to know that because maybe you can calculate the kind of stuff um, um, for your whatever FNM and 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 and, and, and sort of sort of uh, next level people based on that. <laughs> you know that uh, being on the play is an, a heuristic, and every heuristic will have its um, uh, will have its exceptions. And I think that in this particular case, the exception you can actually calculate when you should uh, ignore the heuristic. Mm, awesome, that's pretty cool. Now, yeah, we. You, you were talking about like, just, just kind of want to circle back. You were talking about how, how well they seem to nail domain in this format. And I think that's something we mentioned an episode or two ago. It feels like this was their answer to, to, uh, snow in, in Kaldheim, right? It feels like they tried this with Kaldheim and it didn't work and they took their notes and did their homework and they made it work here. And I think that's incredible because this is really not a, a, a mechanic that feels easy to balance and they were able to balance it in such a way that it doesn't just feel like oh well you know anybody who's drafting domain can pick whatever rare they want and they can take any card they want and they're going to fit it in their deck there is work involved with building these good domain decks there's also even a tension between how far into domain do we go for some of those aggressive domain decks you may not actually want domain five because of the way that it impacts like you were saying that tension between fast domain and slow domain um so yeah really well balanced mechanic Mm -hmm. I think that um, the big difference, and like I, I showed restraint, I showed you know I'm 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 a, I'm a benevolent guest, uh, <laughs> but whoa, what do you mean? Like snow didn't work? Snow did work. I mean, the snow decks were dominating through the first week of Kaldheim, and later they were pushed out by the super aggro decks combined with the fact that people started like forcing snow, and 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 basically you couldn't get your uh, eight to nine snowlands. So that was yeah. the main problem of the snow decks that they needed nine picks to be dedicated to lands if you wanted a good one. And that's a lot of picks. Domain, you can play domain five deck with maybe six of those um, mm. dual lands and a couple, of, uh, couple of the walls, which are not really lands. So actually you can fill in your spell slots uh, by playing them in your deck. So that's a big difference. I still think Snow was pretty successful. Kaltheim was generally one of the better sets in the recent years. So um, uh, no complaints how it was designed there. Um, and I think that Domain, yeah, it, it, it works better. But I think it's just because it was easier to nail Domain than to nail Snow. Because Snow is complicated due to the need of having non-basic lands. While, while here you can do a lot on basic lands and other types of fixing. Hmm. That's fair, I'm gonna yeah. uh, I'm gonna jump into the hole and pick up Zach's shovel for a second. In his defense, I think maybe what he was going for was it felt unbalanced to the player. But this is interesting to discuss because uh, personally, I enjoyed this set a lot more than I did Kaldheim, and I found that part of that was I, I wound up with these. When the snow deck worked, it was almost overkill. It was like I'm picking up every single rare that I see in pack three because I picked efficient fixing, and now I'm just taking all these bombs, and I'm just going to flat, flatten every opponent. And then other times you wound up with these kind of mediocre decks. And yeah, this is all very uh, situational. But with, with Domain, it feels very intentional in that, uh, for example, the Defiler cycle, they're double pipped, and many of those that, you know, those are rare slots that had this been like a snow deck, you would have just opened those, been like, sweet, I opened this thing, I'm going to jam it right into my deck. Because a lot of those defilers are so 
vector specific defiler of faith for example it cares about the number of white permanents you cast as do the, the rest of the cycle that's not the kind of rare that you're just going to jam into uh, any domain deck yeah and i don't yeah, think i don't true. think call them was a failure by any means of course oh no 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 no, no. I, 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 I i absolutely didn't even think about it i was half joking and also um uh, but i think that you know like they, they didn't miss with snow or anything it was just mm-hmm. uh, no no Mm, softening the, the the language here. Um, yeah, I think that this is another design aspect of this set that some people complain about. I don't complain myself. I mean, I don't mind bombs, but I also don't mind if rares are not so great. Um, they decided not to go overboard with the rares and mythics in this format, and they also put a bunch of them that are uh, constructed or commander plans. Uh, mm-hmm. And... <sighs> It's sometimes hurtful that uh, lots of them are just plain unplayable. But I've seen like um, a deck with the uh, red-green rare legend, the one that you can tap oh, two artifacts to, to draw a card. Yeah, uh, I've seen someone playing. Uh, I was tagged in a deck list that they that the author thought I would love, and indeed I did love it. Um, uh, it was like a bunch of artifacts and the uh, and Maria and the. That's cool. Uh, some some domain shenanigans and Karn Silex to be tapped to draw cards. Um, oh, that is cool. Which I think it's a, it's like a nice thing, you know. Hey, look, I tapped this Karn Silex to draw some more cards. Um, uh, but don't worry, if you overextend your board, I'm gonna wipe them all, and uh, uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Hey, I played my eight drop now. I'm not going to destroy it with my Karn Silex. I'm I'm I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> um, so that's there's yeah, like that's, that's very sweet. niche build arounds, and that. Very niche build around area is something I remember from Ikoria, and as you know, uh, Ikoria mm. is my all time favorite set. So basically, yeah. yes, maybe you will only draft the uh, Maria deck once in the format when you open it in the right moment, but there is this opportunity. I, I yeah. watch uh, yeah. Lord Tupperware uh, building the deck with this uh, Ornithopter saga, and he's having success with playing it. And I'm thinking, like, man, that sounds sweet if you can play Ornithopter tribal in this in this format. Or people that build uh, some kind of mad domain Joda the Unifier kind of shenanigans. I mean, these are sweet, sweet build arounds. The problem is that they will only work when you open them early. And also a few things have to come together as well uh, for them to come to to work. Um, But Mm. it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I, I, I like that there is at least a dream to chase. I got to throw my hat in the ring here and say I had a Radadravic of Urborg deck. It was uh, Abzan Legends. I think I had eight or nine legendary creatures in it besides Radadravic and some sacrifice outlets. So uh, I did get to go off and make a bunch of legendary tokens. I had like three Ellis ill cores on the board at one point, which is just, you know, that was great. It's nice because when you have two Ellis ill cores, you can just play the second one and sacrifice it and instantly make a non-legendary copy, no? Uh-huh. Yep. Good stuff. <sighs> Living, living on the fast lane. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that. Oh, and you also drained for that. <laughs> so good. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and of course, you had the Urborg reclamations and Obzon and everything. But Obviously, anyway, <laughs> let's jump into our last vector here, which is defenders. And we wanted to specify that this was its own unique thing. It, it does often overlap with um, the domain deck, or sometimes even uh, the spells decks, but. This is unique enough that, I mean, it's clearly its own thing. It has a very specific game plan, and it hinges on a few particular cards, which is unique for vectors. I mean, the the white go-wide vector, we rattled off like 10 different cards that all contribute to this vector direction. 
But the defender vector, it's really contingent on a handful of cards, namely Shieldwall Sentinel and Wingmantle Chaplain are kind of these defining uh, things. So first of all, we've been joking about it the whole episode, but what is going on with the data for Shieldwall Sentinel and Wingmantle Chaplain? Okay, so like when the format was out, I instantly noticed that there's something wrong with it. And um, what is wrong with it is that every card in the format will be drawn when it's in your deck, you'll draw it roughly between 40 and 50% of the games because that's how long the games last um, and how many cantrips are there. So basically, yeah, uh, I think that all but eight cards in the format just fall into that. You draw it 40 to 50% um, uh, times, um, <coughs> sorry, 40% of the games you will draw it. Um, and there's few notable uh, exceptions. And, uh, for example, Rona's Vortex was one of those. Um, and then the rest of the exceptions are walls. And I was thinking, like, why? And then, of course, the answer is um, uh, the Shieldmate Sentinel, because uh, it tutors for things, which means that they go into your hand, which means that 17 lens marks them as um, um, as they're being drawn, even though they were put there as, as a sort of tutor mechanism. Mm. Um, so that means that um, if you play decks that are built around the Wingmantle Chaplain, you will draw Wingmantle Chaplain something like 64% of the games. Uh, so that's that's a lot over the over the average what you should be seeing it. That's 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 Definitely. something like you know 20 percentage points uh, more than than you would uh, expect it. Which means that I think I calculated it at 40 percent of the time you draw Wingmantle Chaplain, it's because you had Shield Will Sentinel. Hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. It 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 sort of makes it from a card that is already good because it makes usually several uh, one ones into a card that is excellent because it moves it to this kind of mascot exhibition. Um, cluster. Mascot Exhibition was a great card, but one of the most important things about it is that it was a card you drew in every game that you wanted to draw. Yeah, yeah. Because you could always lesson learn, get a Mascot Exhibition. Um, and Wingmetal Chaplain, because of how little need is there for the Shieldwall Sentinel by other people, unless they have their wing, uh, wing Metal Chaplain of their own, you'll get them. And you will get them late picks. You will wield them very often. If, if you open it, you wheel it 80% of the time, uh, according to the data, yeah. So it's not a priority by anyone. And that 20% means that someone else had a, a Wingmantle somewhere on the, uh, in your pod. Which means if you have a Wingmantle Chaplain, which is like the, the strongest uncommon that there was probably in the last three years or so, you draft this uh, stupid 9-pick, 10-pick uh, Shieldwall um, uh, uh, Sentinel, you have a second copy of it, sort of, virtually. Mm -hmm. You play a deck that also has uh, Urberker Possession. You don't even care about kicking it because you just return the uh, Wing Metal Chaplain. You replay it and you get more of the one ones. It's It just becomes... And don't even get me to the situation that uh, my opponent put me in when they had uh, the Argosy, the, the oh, vehicle. Yeah. And they were just tapping all their walls to, to make it uh, a, a creature. Attacking with the Argosy, you phase out all the walls... They all come back, which means that the wing metal chaplain that you schedule as the first trigger sees all of them and makes the whatever three, four, uh, one ones. But then they all come into play. Yeah. Which makes more one ones. And that's just Disgusting. not fair. It's not fair. 
Of course, I saw. Uh, on the bright uh, side, the game probably doesn't last that much longer. No, no, that. that's game. that's a combo that reduces the. Uh, <laughs> the I mean, I would just even, even further by just conceding and then saying good game because I think <laughs> it was uh, excellent what the, my opponent did, but I don't want to see more of that. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, I think your question, just to go, to go back to the to the merit uh, to the to the to the to the point of you are asking, do successful defenders decks exist outside of wing metal chaplain? Mm-hmm. And what's up with uh, Shieldwell Sentinel and Chaplin's data? So first thing, important part of the uh, Chaplin data is that you draw it much more frequently than any other card in the format because you can tutor it up and you do tutor it up, uh, which makes the card much better than the win rate data suggests. Second part is that Shieldwell Sentinel's win rate is high because it brings back Wing Metal Chaplin. It's not the mm-hmm. win rate of the uh, Shieldmate Sentinel. It's the win rate of the Wig Metal Chaplain, and it's slightly lower because sometimes it takes something else. So that's that's the thing. But because it brings Chaplain so frequently, those win rates are going to be heavily correlated um, because they are in the same games uh, in hand. Now, can you make a successful deck, defender-based deck, without those? Yes, you can. I had trophy deck with no Chaplain. It was ready to open a Chaplain. Mm. But no, no, I didn't open it. <laughs> Doesn't um, always happen. Um, but I still had like three blight piles um, and um, a lot of interaction, and I played my game by clogging the board with um, with with my walls, uh, killing the creatures that were threatening to go through the walls, and at some stage starting pinging people for six a turn, and uh, and then winning the game, and then I had a bunch of uh, um, Urberg repossessions to. Uh, return my walls if they were killed or something like that. I had a couple of the coral uh, barriers as well, so um, uh, coral coral colonies, so I could also mill them on occasions. And sometimes I did a sneaky, like, I do some mills so that they kill the coral walls, and then I finish them off with the damage because I know that they have to kill the coral walls, but then I know that I can take over the game with the uh, barriers. And yeah, nice m- many strategies. So- but... It's not easy to come together, and it's it's not as a good strategy as just dumping this uh, uh, chaplain and, and and winning the game very quickly. So it sounds like I know the answer to this, but I and I haven't looked at the data. But from what you've seen, it sounds like you prefer the blight pile as a win condition to the coral colony in general. I don't prefer either as a win condition. I I would hope not to have either as a win condition. I think that blight pile is just a safer win condition. Because the worst, the worst case scenario is that I'm milling my opponent's eerie um, salt tenders again, and I'm giving them free value if I mill them, and that's the thing I'm, I'm or, or you know, like I mill their wing metal chaplain, and they already have the repossession in hand. Yeah. Like gr- putting things in the graveyard is not free. Right. And that's why I'm a bit worried about uh, colony. Although I, I, I did have games when I just like sucker punch people, so um, I just mill them for four at the end of turn and then mill them for eight on their turn because I had two coral colonies and that's just enough because they have one card left. Um, right. And then I don't care that much what they draw and play because they will have summoning sickness most likely and uh, next turn they're dead. Mm-hmm. So um, I prefer my coral colony to be like a sort of one turn uh, win con when I'm not going to be using it most of the game and I'm going to build the game to the situation when I can uh, when I can use it for multiple and like for five or something, and then have multiple of them as well. Um, but blight pile doesn't have that problem because I, I can pink for two, three, and that's fine. I just do chip damage, 
the problem is that the mana cost is higher. The, the three mana versus two mana is a big difference. If it was two mana, it would have been so much a better card. Mm, definitely. But it's not that wall deck needs support here extra on top of right. Chaplin. <laughs> right. Now, we noticed that there tend to be like two homes for this color-wise. And this is where I guess once the data is available, we'd love to see some specifics. Um, it, it kind of fits into these like Sultai-ish domain decks uh, that are already like picking up duels and things like that. And then the Furifluous Vine Wall is a big part of it. Um, but then earlier in the show, we mentioned the black-white, kind of the slower version of the deck and more mid-rangey to late game, one that makes best use of... Uh, like Urborg repossession and things like that. And it can go, you know, into other colors too. Um, but I found this to be a really good home for Gibbering Barricade. And I've, I've played this deck and I've seen it a couple times. Uh, the kind of go-wide aristocrats, not go-wide, I shouldn't say that. I should say the like mid-rangey to grindy version that has Wingmantle Chaplain and is able to make good use of the flyers um, as it makes just a million tokens, right? So you can chump and sack them to the barricade. Um, you can have a lot of uh, recursion for the wing mantle chaplain itself. Um, and some of the early death touchers and, uh, just walls that get in the way. Um, like the, the splatter goblin is that thing. Uh, sometimes people don't want to attack into it. There, there's ways for black and white to propel itself into the late game, uh, and, and make sure that you have time for the wing mantle chaplain to come down and then to recur it too. Yeah. So there's definitely multiple flavors of it. And, uh, you don't want to be, I think, like you, you can build more aggressive builds of of, of, of the wall deck, but I, I think that you still should should focus on trying to build it a bit more grindy attritiony. Because mm-hmm. in the end, if you play a wall deck, you play walls. Walls are not known for aggression. Um, well, maybe bulwark is, but also two mana that it costs is quite a lot. Um, yeah. So because again, using your vector um, uh, concept, you put a bunch of cards that vector you into the direction of attrition. You put your repossessions because you want to rebuy your uh, uh, chaplains. You put your um, walls, which not exactly uh, aggressive creatures. A bunch of um, interaction because you need this in, the, in these type of decks. So you have like a natural shell already builds itself to be, uh, to be reactive, uh, defensive, and, and, and slower. So you might as well go with it because then your deck will be just a bit more... Um, uh, a bit more uh, coherent, and I'm. I was just like looking through uh, through the color combinations on uh, seventeen lands, and I'm just looking, and uh, the, the, the stats of the Wingmantle Chaplain are just disgusting. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at every color combination that has white, and and, and looking like white blue, best uncommon Wingmantle Chaplain. White black, best uncommon Wingmantle Chaplain. Yeah. White red. <laughs> Best in common, ha, Knight of the Dawn's Light. Uh, okay, there we uh, go. There we go. Wingmantle Chaplain is probably in top 10, but not, not high. But with white red doesn't even have anything to do with walls, but still when you put the Wingmantle Chaplain in it, it becomes good. Mm-hmm. Uh, white green, the best uncommon Wingmantle Chaplain. Um, Esper, I mean, that's, not, I mean, you know, definitely Wingmantle Chaplain. <laughs> that that uh, smells like Wingmantle Chaplain yeah. in, a, in a deck there, yeah. It's it's bad in Jeskai. Hurrah! We found nice. one. Nice. Uh, so that's the one. It's third best in band, but mm. first two are, are are splash cards that are probably put there very rarely. I mean, definitely are put there very rarely, and 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 it, the difference is just um, uh, theoretical. Um, Mardu, Prayer of Binding, and then Wing Metal Chaplain. Uh, Interesting. Absent. Oh, it's actually Coral Colony. 
but that's again on a very small uh, number <laughs> and then wing metal chaplain and then long 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 nothing and then walking bulwark and then blight pile that's so, funny uh, so these are the uncommons for your uh, Abzan decks. And then the Shoba Brawler, which, you know, I mean, it's a great card. Hmm. Uh, oh, finally, we have something. Naya, the Shoba Brawler, whether it's treaty. That's that's how it should be, I guess. Yeah, that, that makes a little more sense. And then, of course, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't need to say, but uh, if you get four-color uh, four color decks, you're going to get uh, also a bunch of uh, Wing Mental Chaplain decks uh, that are pretty good. So the card is dominant in any, any color combination, which means it can be played in any kind of strategy. But uh, I think that most of them should probably focus on being on the slower side. That's, uh, that's my, my gut feeling about it. Now, we actually had a question on the show the other week. Um, and we, we, uh, we know you're a big fan of Ikoria. So how does this compare to Zenith Flare? depends on what you want if you if you if, if you like zenith flare then favorably if you hated zenith flare then unfavorably mm-hmm. i think, you that, think it's as dominant i think it's more dominant because you draw it so mm. much more there's also like okay so there's there's two things like uh it has the same problem that zenith flare had and that the most important support cards that uh um are important for this both cards are widely available because one mana color the cycling lots of those cards were just like freebies for you there were some that were harder to get but you prioritized those obviously yeah um but you could get your bulk of 12 cycling spells in every draft in the korea if you wanted um and you can get the shield wall sentinels you can get a bunch of other walls easily in this format because they are not priority unless you're drafting the chaplain deck so that's the thing now cycling a lot did draw you more cards, but not to the extent that um, that uh, tutoring for the uh, uh, Wing Metal Chaplain does. I don't think it's a healthy situation when you first pick an uncommon over almost every rare. Mm. It, it is okay if the rare level is just very mediocre. That's fine. Um, there's, it's okay that some formats will have um, not many rares to be played. But if the rares are good, but you still pick an uncommon over it, now that's something a sign of something wrong. The good part is that I'm currently playing the, as I said, the Wing, wing Metal Chaplain deck. I opened it and I knew that I'm just like, I, my draft is over at that point because I know that I'm yeah. going to just do everything to go on this uh, um, uh, Chaplain deck. And that I will probably be able to do it because of the low pick priority of the cards. So, and again, powerful archetype that is very available is a, a dangerous combination. Um, but it sort of removes a bit. Like, I would prefer to, like, put a bit more challenge. Like, in Ikoria, I think that the best thing that was there, and so especially in the beginning before the nerf of Companion, was, was drafting Companion decks. They put you in the same situation, but at least if you opened your uh, Zerda and you wanted to draft the Zerda deck, you had to think a bit. You had yeah, to, good. you know, craft it a bit. But here it's just like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm just taking walls. I mean, oh, it says walls on it. I'm just picking every wall. <laughs> well, I'm just going to pick some removal to add up to it, and I want to replay my wall. Saving grace is that after the weeks one and two, people learn how to play against it better. So now I know that the deck, it's hard to smuggle through my wing metal chaplain. Mm. They know that I will try to recur it. So they will yeah. probably try to do something about it as well. They know that when they attack into it and I block um, an Erebrook possession, they are they are in the in the pickle. So they don't do like uh, attacks like that. They play it more crafty. So I think it's easier to play around with Mental Chaplain than it was against Zenith Flare because there was no response for Zenith Flare, and that was the problem. Like mm-hmm. you just play the game, and then oh, and that goes twelve of my life, uh, and uh, I'm dead. 
So yeah, that's yeah. That, that's one big difference. But both are yeah, one, quite menacing. One thing too that we had talked about in a previous episode was the I, and I'll be very curious to see the data on this um, for Dominaria United. But was it it felt in Ikoria felt more like you could if you opened or got passed by some miracle a Zenith Flare later in the draft you could pivot into that deck very easily because everything had cycling already. So you probably already had a bunch of cycling cards in your deck. Whereas if you get past the Wingmantle Chaplain later in the game, you're less. It feels anyway. Like I said. I haven't seen the data. It feels less likely to be able to pivot into a Wingmantle Chaplain deck because you've already missed, you know, maybe two packs of of picking up walls. Whereas when you first pick it, obviously it's it's very easy to build around. Do you think that the data will support that? I think so. I think that's um, rel- relatively easy to pivot into a Chaplain deck in pack two. Uh, I think. Okay, so uh, let me read you the deck list that um, I found. I was I was doing research for something and. Uh, I was looking through deck lists on the 17 lands. Uh, 17 lands has the recent trophy decks um, uh, list. And I found this deck and uh, I'm going to read it to you. Two walking, because it's it only has 11 types of spells, which is not much uh, in a limited deck. There's two walking bulwarks, Rona's Vortex, two timely interferences, uh, five coral colonies, uh, four essence scatters, silver scrutiny, two academy walls, ether channeler, Micromancer, four shield wall sentinels, and wing metal chaplain, <laughs> and that's it. That's the deck. What? But I, I, I basically didn't know whose deck it was because they are anonymous. So I said congratulations to whoever drafted it. Uh, and the person actually uh, saw that post and contacted and 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 sent his seventeen their seventeen lines, oh, his seventeen lines uh, log. Wow! And he got the wing metal chaplain pack three pick eight. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. the, deck, the deck was ready for the chaplain the deck was ready and it, it just arrived it Boom. arrived and it, last you know, possible chance it has white wow. one it, it, this is a mono blue deck uh, with one white card yeah wow I, i'm not over like just so many coral colonies and the essence scatters and you said there was an aether channel in there too yeah just you know jeez and, and it's scrutiny you know like a micromancer packaged um um yeah Oh, by the way, this is like one thing that we were talking about and I didn't mention, but I think that when we talk about wall decks, there is one particular card that is so much better in wall decks than in domain decks, and that's the Crystal Grotto. That mm. card is really good. I, I mean, I, I, I play two copies in my uh, wall deck right now, and um, and it's and, and, and they work sweet. They work sweet because I sometimes will need that um, uh, splash mana for um, a kicker mana for uh, Urberg Repossession. Mm-hmm. And I have it from the Grotto. I don't care that I don't yeah. have a domain because I have zero domain payoffs in my deck. Mm. I have a couple of uh, whatever the uh, artillery blasts, but that's fine. I mean, they can deal four damage. It's it's uh, I will live with that. But um, Grotto's do well because they also um, uh, help me. The scry is important on that card. Uh, mm. it works. It works much better than I thought it did. Yeah, I'll be honest. I, I was not high on Grotto. I, I've only played it a handful of times, but me, I, me I see how it'd be much more applicable in a deck where, again, you, you also, the scry is important because you care about a very specific subset of the cards in your deck. Like you're trying to find mm. that chaplain or you're trying to find the shield wall sentinel to go find your chaplain. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, especially my deck that because I only have one, I, I unfortunately saw only one shield wall sentinel. And that's... Mm. Uh, it's, it's, 
it's not a problem because my deck can go really long. I mean, I have like a bunch of interaction that is uh, impressive because I knew from pick one, pick one, what I'm, what I want to do with my life. Um, so I still, I draw it every every game because I can prolong the game so long that I will find, find something. But, um, but yeah, that scry is definitely helping. It's not disturbing my uh, ability to find what I need. So just to kind of wrap up here, I mean, it's it's pretty clear there are a lot of different directions that you can go in this format. We, it, one of the best things about the format, in my opinion, is that there are so many options in terms of how you draft your deck and how you build your deck. I'll be curious to see if we get something similar to like Zendikar Rising, where like midway through the format, a deck like Blue Green Wizards pops up and uh, something that like most people didn't really expect to see, but but ended up being quite good. I, I'm curious if we'll see a deck like that. Um, but overall, it's it's a pretty awesome format. I, it, it is definitely an awesome format. I, I don't think that we will have like Zendikar Rising was probably the most on rails format that we had recently. It was like everything was a two colored uh, deck. There was no splashing um, because you had so many spells that you could play because of the MDFCs as well um, that you just didn't even bother going a bit astray. There were a couple of innovations made there because uh, some cards were maybe slightly underdrafted. I think in this format, it won't happen not because. It's not there, that deck that you're talking about, but it's because there's so many decks. There's so many archetypes. I'm pretty sure that you can construct like 50 different archetypes that are distinctively different from each other. You already said during the intros that, you know, you have the, you, you can have your blue-white deck being go-white. You can have your blue-white deck being control. You can have your blue-white deck being tempo. You can have the blue-white flyers, aggro, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. So you, you, can, you can basically build so many different types of the same archetype and they are all valid that you probably won't find the secret archetype. Like like you said, blue, green wizards were, or actually when we go back to Kalfheim, the green, black elves was the sort of secret archetype that appeared in the later phase of the format and, and, and started sort of dominating. I think, that, I think that they would just not come together often enough to be an archetype on its own rights because it's so hard for something to um, come together frequently in this format unless it's already discovered. Things will rarely come together the same way twice, right? And, and that's that's partly why this set is so replayable. Uh, that's why it's not going to get boring <laughs> very soon because each draft, even if you do the same vector twice in a row, you could draft two wing mantle chaplain decks and they could look totally different. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm still I'm still waiting for because I already opened Joda in my pack in my first pack. And yeah. even though I tried, it just didn't didn't come together. I didn't see any legends. I'm still waiting for my Joda deck. It'll happen. But thank you, Sirkovitz. Thank you for coming on. Uh, where can people find you? What's what's new? What's coming up? At this place called the Interweb. <laughs> I'm there. Um, it's a fancy new thing. There is this. Uh, if, if you go to your Alta Vista and uh, write Sirkovitz in it, you will find me. I don't know if Alta Vista exists, but if not, then there is Yahoo or something like that. Let me get your number for my Rolodex real quick, and uh, <laughs> we'll Oof. be on our way. Wow, Rolodex, that brings me back, brings me back to my youth. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, anything Sherkovitz is Sherkovitz. Uh, uh, you know, if you're interested in the kind of content I provide, uh, you will find me. But spelling me is just complicated. So just, uh, yeah, if you, you can figure it out. You have smart uh, audience, and most of them know me because I'm on Discord. If you don't know how to spell me, go to... Um, draft chef discord and then find me <laughs> i should be 
I should be labeled there as a friend of the podcast or something. Wow, the the reverse plug. I, I don't know if we've ever seen one of those before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and we're going to link a bunch of your stuff in the show notes too, so people will have Boom. easy access. Done. My job here is done. <laughs> Hopefully not with spelling mistakes. <laughs> all good, all good. Yeah, and, and Circumference also has an awesome stream where he deep dives into uh, a lot of these topics, so check that out. We'll link we'll link the stream in the Discord as well, in the uh, episode description. Oh, yeah, well. that, oh, that's one thing that, yeah, I have a podcast called Magic numbers which is just an audio of my streams they're also on youtube <laughs> watch the youtube versions or come to the stream but if you like it audio then there's podcast as well i just like the name magic numbers i think it's a no one had it and i was very impressed that i could honestly it. yeah it's, it's a fantastic podcast name great and circuit's kind of already alluded to it but if you're not already in the discord it's it's a really awesome place to be so definitely check that out the link to that is in the episode description as well as on our twitter page and if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft Again, huge thanks to everybody who continues to support us over there. And if you'd like to find the show outside of the Discord, you can find us on Twitter at draftchaffpod. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Sierkovitz. And we'll talk to you all next week. Okay, now before we go, quick little sign off. Uh, first of all, I owe you a thank you, Sierkovitz, because a long time ago in Discord, we were talking about pasta. And you told me that I should hunt down Rumo Pasta. And it has since elevated my weeknight dinner game to the highest levels. Oh, well, I'm super happy that it works for you. I mean, you know that um, south of Italy is slightly economically underprivileged. And uh, Rumo is actually produced uh, by a small family. Well, small family company that probably is now quite big. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's still good to support the economy down there, especially the dried pasta does come from uh, the south. I don't know if you know what's the difference between uh, the egg pasta from the north and the uh, wheat pasta from the south. But See, basically, this is actually the next thing I was going to say because I, I tend to eat gluten-free. And Rumo actually has a solid line of, of gluten-free pastas, including like a red Oh, lentil. yeah, they do have, yeah. Um, but so what is this difference between, uh, do they also make egg pasta? I don't think I've seen that. Mm, I don't think that Rumo does egg pasta. Lots of companies do it, but... Basically, the difference is like it's 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 the you know the spaghetti with meatballs. That's like American version of um, of the actual uh, ragu bolognese. Now, why is it like that? So in the north, they don't have hard wheat, which is needed to make dried pasta. They only have it in the south. Hmm. So because the difference between soft wheat and dry wheat and, and hard wheat is the amount of protein in the uh, in the grain in the flour. Um, hard wheat has more protein in the flour. Therefore, you don't need to add anything to the, uh, uh, to, the to the pasta. You basically put water and flour, and there's enough protein in there to make a coherent dough. In the north, they have the soft wheat, which doesn't have enough protein. How do you add extra protein? Add an egg. You add an egg, you get an extra protein, and the dough comes together much easier. Now, in the north, they were making this dish called Dragu Bolognese in Bologna, obviously. Um, uh, it's exclusively served, well, almost exclusively served with tagliatelle, with egg and there is like no tomato in there because uh, in the north they didn't do tomato. It's made with butter, not with olive oil. It's mainly carrots and onions and 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 and, and chopped meat. So most immigrants that moved to America were from the south. They moved in there and south was poor. Most of the cuisine there was vegetarian. Um, so they moved to America and they had this big prosperity. Like meat was everywhere. They could they could do it like every weekend, basically, which was unthinkable. Like pasta with meat was for weddings, and that was it. Wow. Huh. So they 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 know that there is this pasta with ragu. 
but it was not their pasta. It was the pasta from the north, from Bologna. So they tried to do it in the way that was theirs. And of course, in the south, tomato and everything, olive oil and everything. And they don't have tagliatelle because um, that is the egg pasta. They have their spaghetti, which was a dry pasta. So basically they put the dry pasta from the south. They added tomato as their sort of way of doing it because that um, uh, the only meat pasta that they had was the wedding pasta with small meatballs. Mm-hmm. They started adding the meatballs to their uh, spaghetti and they call it bolognese because uh, it was like they would do in Bologna according to their imagination of what Bologna people would do. <laughs> Which is a funny thing that, that Italy, is Italy is a very long country so and also a very mountainous country. The communication between regions is not perfect. So mm. differences between places that are not even far away from each other can be quite big. And this is the case of... Um, the Southern Italians culturally appropriating the cuisine of Northern Italy <laughs> and then Americans appropriating it even further. And uh, with each appropriation, it, it went quite a long way away from, uh, from the original recipe, which, by the way, if you ever, ever go to Italy in the Northern regions, if you like your food, go to Bologna. And food there is just insane. And if you can have a nice bowl of ragu, you will understand what I'm talking about. This no. has been super enlightening. I'm, I've been wanting to do an eight month or maybe six month trip to Italy where I start up north and just spend a few weeks in different towns and travel my way down. So I might have to turn into a food tour where I compare <laughs> compare notes and this will be great information to take with me. Oh yeah, no, if you, if you ever do that kind of stuff, just contact me. I mean, you know that I'm, I'm a fluent Italian speaker. My wife is Italian and uh, uh, I have some cultural links with the country to say the least. <laughs> now I'm only awesome. a quarter Italian, but uh, I think I know what I'm going to go make for dinner because I feel pretty inspired after this conversation. And yeah, Rumo definitely worth uh, worth worth um, worth recommending. Now we have to start your um, education on which shape to use with which sauce. <laughs>